Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. So the big debate last night on Zero Hedge about the dollar. This was the clash of the titans. As far as the debate, is the dollar going to lose reserve currency status? And they gave it a date by 2030. But they talked about the dollar. They talked about gold, as you can imagine. But you won't believe what else they talked about. I was not expecting this. So let's go right over to the video. We'll go through some clips. I'll give you my reaction. And then we'll go to this one part that I think is going to completely blow you away. So uh, Michael and Brent are on my left. Bob, Jim on my right. Adam, my good buddy, was kind of moderating. And so what I want to do is start off with their opening statements because I don't want to, obviously, I'm not going to go through the whole uh, debate, although I think it's well worth your time. And then I'll kind of give you my response on their opening statement, which they just kind of double and triple down on throughout the rest of the first, say, hour and a half of this debate. Under discussion is the U.S. dollar will cease to be the leading world reserve currency by the year 2030. Yes or no? Now, let's start with Team Yes. Okay, Jim, you've got two minutes for your opening statement. Great. Uh, just to begin, I think it's important to understand what we're not talking about. We have the proposition that the U.S. will cease to be the leading reserve currency. U.S. dollar will cease to be the leading reserve currency by the year 2030. But we're not talking about a situation where you go to bed at night, you wake up the next day, and that's the end of the dollar. It's not an instantaneous, catastrophic uh, uh, situation. It's much more gradual, much more erosion, almost like watching uh, something rust and then eventually it falls apart. And uh, we have a, a live case, a real example of this. Go back to 1914, the spring of 1914. There was no question that the pound sterling was the leading reserve currency. The dollar had a role. Uh, we were on a gold standard at the time, but sterling was the leading reserve currency. Uh, and then, of course, we had the outbreak of World War I. Uh, a lot of countries, a lot of the belligerents, uh, suspended redemption of gold. They said, we got to hang on to our gold. We're going to need that to win the war. Um, but there was an argument in, in London in the Exchequer about whether the UK should do that or not. Believe it or not, John Maynard Keynes was the leading voice saying, do not suspend convertibility to gold, because he said correctly that you're not going to win with gold, you're not going to win with money, you're going to win with credit. And by maintaining their credit worthiness, they were, uh, Jack Morgan in New York organized $100 million loans. That's back when uh, $100 million was a lot of money uh, for the UK and France, but nothing for Germany. And, of course, with a lot of uh, human sacrifice and tragedy, they did win the war. But at the beginning, all the European belligerents sold all their assets in New York. They were selling stocks, bonds, real estate, converting it to dollars and then gold and shipping the gold back to Europe because they knew they would need it to fight the war. Um, but within a few months, that was August 1914, within a few months by November, the gold started to come back to the United States because they needed to buy armaments, weapons, clothing, food, energy, et cetera. So the U.S. ended up with an enormous inflow of gold for the rest of the world. That was the turning point. November 1914 was the beginning of the end of sterling, but it was a 22-year process. They had three devaluations in the 20s. The dollar and the sterling were like a horse race. They were neck and neck as to who was the leader. But by the 30s, it was all over. The UK devalued in 1931, uh, de facto devalued in 1933 when the US devalued against gold. But since they were, the UK was on a gold standard, they devalued. And then 1936, the tripartite agreement, 
Um, World War II was sort of a timeout, obviously, but then 1944, the final nail in the coffin. So whether you want to take it, the 22-year period from 1914 to 1936 or make a 30-year period to 1944, either way, uh, that, was, uh, that was the end of sterling, but it took 20 or 30 years. The dollar is in the same process. You say, Jim, is it going to take 20 more years? No, it started in 2008, so we're pretty far along. So add 22 and you get to 2030. Okay, so that's a quick summary of Jim's view. So my response to this, or my comments, would be, first and foremost, you have to define what constitutes a global reserve currency. Like, what do you mean by that? Because when we get on to Bob, you'll hear that, that his, it seems his definition of a global reserve currency is just what are the central banks holding most? Like, like what is in the central bank's reserves? So it, are the central banks holding more dollars or are they holding more euros? Or all the, are they holding more Japanese yen? You know, so it, it's really kind of central bank focused where for me, I have a completely different view of what makes a global reserve currency. It isn't necessarily what the central banks are doing. Like I, I don't really think they impact the, the real economy uh, to a significant degree. It, it's what are the businesses doing? What are the entities doing? What are the global corporations doing? And so what I do is I look at GDP, global GDP, and I ask myself, okay, what percentage of these transactions are settled in dollars? Or another way to look at it, because it's, it's representative of economic activity, is when we're looking at uh, derivatives, such as currency swaps, is that what percentage of those transactions uses the dollar on one side of that transaction or on one side of that? So if you've got a, a, a currency swap, let's say between bank A and bank B, uh, or let's say you've got 100 of these currency swaps, what percentage of them will use the dollar for one of the currencies? And when you look at these statistics, you, you see that it's like 96%. <laughs> I mean, it's not, not even close, not even close. But the point is I would look at that as more of an indicator of the quote-unquote global reserve currency. I would look at that more so than just is the BOJ holding more dollars or holding more euros. That's number one. And unfortunately, they, they really didn't define what is a global reserve currency. But like, like in my mind, it means this. So if you don't define that right from the beginning, you, you start talking over one another to the point where you're not making any progress. The next thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, Jim's historical account is obviously accurate. Uh, this started maybe in, who knows what the exact date, but you saw this transition from the British pound being used more and more and more for global settlement, uh, or excuse me, the British pound being used less and less and less, and the dollar being used more and more and more. And uh, I always say this, you know, it wasn't really Bretton Woods. The, the pound started to lose its reserve status, you know, 20, 30, 40 years before then. But what, what Jim doesn't point out is the reason they lost the reserve status or the reason the dollar came to prominence wasn't because you had a king or a president kind of wave their, their magic wand and say, from now on, I decree that the United States dollar is the world reserve currency. Or from now on, 
we are only going to buy our goods from Saudi Arabia in dollars or something like that. Uh, no, that, that, that's not what happened. It was a bottoms up type of move. It was not a top down. So what ended up happening are all the entities in the real economy that are trading goods and services amongst one another and or, or trading goods and services for uh, currency units amongst one another and with entities overseas see the United States economy doing better and better and better and say, wow, I, I really want to uh, go into that market. I think that would increase my revenue. I want those Americans as my customer. Therefore, if I'm doing more and more business with the United States, naturally, you're going to hold more and more dollars. So again, it was bottoms up. It was not top down. We never had a president in the United States come out and make some sort of law that from now on, we are only using dollars when we transact with XYZ company or country. Uh, so I think that's very, very important as we get later on in the conversation, because when you watch this, assuming that you watch the rest of it, Jim keeps going back to, well, Russia's doing this deal with China and China's doing this deal with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is doing this deal with yada, yada, yada. And then he talks about how this is happening very quickly. It's been accelerated because of the U.S. sanctions and therefore none of these central banks want to hold on to dollar assets and all of these things. But we lose sight of the fact that that's not how a global reserve currency comes to fruition. It's not because of what Putin does with Xi Jinping, because at the end of the day, the entities in the real economy decide what they want to hold as their reserve. Do they want a counterparty of the United States dollar and the euro dollar system? Or do you want your counterparty to be Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin? I mean, a perfect example of this is Turkey right now, right? Their, their currency is not the U.S. dollar. It's the Turkish lira. That, that's by government decree that everyone should be using Turkish lira. And when you're trading back and forth and back and forth, it should be Turkish lira. Okay, but what do the businesses do? They tell the Turkish government to pound sand. They give them the middle finger. They say, oh, I don't care if you want me transacting in Turkish lira. It ain't going to happen. I'm transacting in the United States dollar or some of them transact in euros. Like even the uh, tour guide, that I hired when I was in Istanbul six months ago or so. Actually, boy, this was maybe a year ago now. Uh, the, 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 I said how much I went to the concierge at the hotel, and they hooked me up with this gal that was a professional tour guide. And I said, okay, how much is it? They said $150. I said, it's not even denominated in lira? <laughs> like, no, no, no. We don't, even, we don't even use that to quote prices, you see? So again, it, it, it's... I was frustrated with the rest of the conversation because uh, although Brent did bring it up to his credit, uh, the other three guys uh, were really just talking about, you know, what are the central banks and the governments doing? And at the end of the day, I, I don't think that matters near as much as what are the actual entities in the real economy doing, because that's what's going to represent the percentage of global transactions that are actually settled in dollars. That's what's going to represent the percentage of dollars or the percentage of, of derivative transactions where dollar is one side of the, um, of the, the trade. It, it's not going to be what, what 
Vladimir Putin is telling you to do or with some sort of deal that Xi Jinping struck with Brazil. I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question right now. If you're a multinational in Brazil, and let's just say that you're using dollars that's worked for you for the last 50 years, and uh, you've got all your infrastructure set up to deal with dollars and all your customers and all your accounts and all your inputs, all the wholesalers that you work with. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lulu comes out and says, hey, we just struck this deal with Russia, so we're going to start using the BRICS currency. And you, as that multinational, have a decision to make. Do you want to use what's worked very, very well for you for the last 50 years? Or do you want to take all this risk by now holding uh, a currency that effectively uh, is putting you in a position of having to assess the counterparty risk of the Russian government? Or not just that, but the Russian government cooperating with the Chinese government, cooperating with the Brazilian government, cooperating with all these other governments where the cultures are completely different. I mean, if I'm a multinational, I'm looking at that saying, uh, yeah, no thanks. And then Jim goes on to talk about how it's not going to be redeemable in gold, but it's going to be pegged to the price of gold. Okay, but there again, you've got counterparty risk. I don't care what Vladimir Putin comes out and says that he's going to do or what the the monetary authority, whatever that would be, uh, what they say they're going to do, I have to trust that you're actually going to do it. So let's go back throughout history with the Chinese government, the Russian government, the Brazilian government, South African government, for heaven's sakes. I mean, look at what they're doing down there. Show me what in their past, in their recent history, would lead you to believe that you should trust them when it comes to whatever currency they create. <laughs> I mean, it's you might do that. But the multinational down in Brazil, they're going to tell you to pound sand. Forget it. I'm going to use the system that I've been using for the last 50 years. So uh, that's my comment on kind of Jim's argument. Let's get on to, to Bob's. All right. Um, good opening there, Jim. I kept it more or less uh, within the two to three minute timeline, even though we're looking for two and under. Uh, Bob, over to you, my friend. Okay, sure. So uh Going along with what Jim said, the general spirit of that, yes, it's this isn't something that we're predicting is going to start at some point. This is already underway. For example, just looking at the official statistics of the, the uh, composition of reserves held by central banks around the world, back in 2000, the U.S. dollar was 71%, and then as of 2022, it had fallen to 58%. Okay, so if that trend alone just continued, then by the year 2036, the dollar would be less than 50%. Yeah. What I'd quickly point out to Bob there is if you go back to the 1990s, it was down around 50% as well. And then it went up to uh, the 70% range where he started, but let's keep going. Okay. So this isn't, you know, some newfangled theory where we're positing something novel happening. We're just basically saying that trend that's already in motion, if it just happened a little bit faster than by 2030, the dollar would be below 50%. So big picture, I'm saying, Right now, there's still a lot of people that think, oh, yeah, the dollar is the only game in town. Where else are people going to go? I'm very confident by 2030, people aren't going to be talking like that anymore. Does it mean that there's going to be another specific sovereign currency that has a higher percentage than the dollar? Maybe, maybe not. But I think for sure it's going to be considered to be a multipolar world at that point. Just to give one other statistic, again, for things that I think people lose track of because it happened so fast. In 2008, the federal debt as a percentage of GDP, talking about the U.S., of course, was 39%. As recently as 2008, 
The latest CBO reports is by 2034, it's going to be 116% of GDP. And that's just the stuff baked into the cake. That's not assuming that there's another big recession. That's just normal trajectory of what's already you know, on, on in store. So I think this shows that this trend is not going to get any better. And again, we're just predicting a little bit of an acceleration of what's already clearly been underway for decades. All right, great, thanks. Okay, so again, what, what he's doing and where I would have a different view is he is defining the global reserve currency based on what the central banks are doing. Uh, if you look at the statistics or the metrics that I referenced before, as far as the dollar as uh, a percentage of GDP settlement, um, or you look at the, the derivatives, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a flat line. It doesn't really have anything to do with what the central banks are, are choosing to, to hold. Uh, now, he talked about the U.S. Uh, debt crisis and whatnot, and uh, I, I don't know what that has to do with the United States dollar being used for transactions, because what the assumption there is that uh, we're going to issue all of this debt, there's going to be no one to buy it, therefore the only game in town is going to be the Fed, all that debt's going to have to go into the Fed's balance sheet, they're going to have to quote-unquote print money, and that's going to create consumer price inflation, and because we have more and more of this consumer price inflation in the United States, no entities outside of the United States are going to want to hold treasuries, they're not going to want to hold dollars, because they're losing their value relative to goods and services in the United States. Where I disagree with that is I think that's a misunderstanding as to why entities hold uh, dollars. It's a misunderstanding as to why they use dollars. And it's definitely a misunderstanding as to why uh, they hold treasuries. So, um, but, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's understandable that you would come to that conclusion because if you just kind of take a treasury at face value, you're like, yeah, you're just buying a debt instrument uh, that pays you a yield. And therefore, if it's a 5% yield, uh, you're hoping that inflation stays under 5% in the United States, assuming that your bills, expenses are denominated in dollars. Uh, therefore, you have a positive real return. And you're going to hold on to that for 10 years. And you're just, it's just like a dividend paying stock. And you're just going to get paid for owning it. It's just like getting an interest rate on a checking account or a savings account. Uh, unfortunately, this view is um, does not consider the main reason why entities <laughs> hold treasuries that has nothing to do with the CPI in the United States. And that's assuming that the Fed taking their balance sheet up and up and up would even impact the consumer price inflation in the U.S. And as you guys know from watching my videos, that's debatable because that assumes the banks do something. And I don't know that the level of reserves impacts the, the bank's decision-making process at all. Uh, so, And then another thing that this assumes is that the dollar, as a result, goes down in value against other foreign currencies. And that is kind of uh, at the heart of uh, Jim and Bob's argument. But there, they never address the structural components of the global monetary system that make it very difficult for the dollar to go down in value relative to the currencies. And at the end, they even admit that, yes, the dollar will most likely um, stay higher, but then, but it's going to lose value to gold. It's going to lose value to gold. Well, I, I don't know. What does that have to do? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Right. Uh, you can say, well, if a country pegs its currency to gold, 
Therefore, that's going to become the global reserve currency. But then again, you've got that counterparty risk, assuming that they're going to actually make good on that. And then you also have the network effect, which they didn't reference, which I think is probably the elephant in the room. I think uh, Michael and Brent might have referenced that. But when I talk about uh, a global reserve currency, what that really means is a network. That's all it is. It's just simply a, a network of bank ledgers. That, that's all the dollar is. That's, that's all the euro dollar. That's all the global reserve currency is. Uh, so what you have to understand first and foremost is you're, you're dealing with a network that I would argue is as powerful as the internet itself. It was funny. I did a, a poll on Twitter the other day where I asked people if they would pay 1% of their net worth per year to use the internet. And I think it was maybe 55, 60% said yes. Uh, the other 40 or 45% said no, but most of them said, well, because I just borrow it from my neighbor or something like that. <laughs> or something like that. It's like, okay. Uh, so a, a, a large percentage of people would say, yes, I, I, would, I would pay that. Um, and why would they do that? If you look at the comments, you'll see, well, I need the internet to make money. I need the, you know, it's the way uh, it helps me in my job. It helps me with efficiency. It helps me with all these things. Okay, how's that different than the dollar network? How's that different than the euro dollar system? It's not, it's the exact same. I mean, how many bankers out there make their money as a result of the, of the euro dollar system, uh, as a result of this network? You know, and then you say, well, Joe, I don't make any money as a result of that network, not like the internet. Oh, be careful, be careful. Because once you start diving down that rabbit hole, and once you understand how that impacts Target, once you understand how that network impacts Walmart, Home Depot, the price of the stuff that you buy, the access to goods and services that you may or may not have in the future, you start to realize that, oh yeah, that, that, that dollar network actually does impact me to a massive degree. Just like the internet network impacts my daily life in a way that's much more, let's say, uh, direct or much more in your face, much more explicit. But it's the exact same dy dynamic. So what you've got to argue there is you've got to argue how the next monetary system, and again, if we're talking about a BRICS currency, we're not talking about a currency. We're talking about a network. We're talking about a network. You've got to argue that the BRICS network is going to outcompete the euro dollar network that has been doing what it's been doing since 1950. And by the way, was a creation of the free market. So when they're arguing, and I think Jim gets into this, they're arguing about the network of the BRICS system. It's all about what this country is doing in that country and this country and that country and that country. Okay, well, you as rebel capitalists, I assume that most of you believe the free market is going to create something far more efficient than governments. Well, if that's your belief, then you also have to believe that the euro dollar system is going to be far superior, or the euro dollar network is going to be far superior than any network that a government is going to create, especially if all these governments with completely different cultures, completely different incentives have to somehow work together in order to pull this off, right? So I would encourage you to think about moving forward to think about the dollar, to think about the yen, to think about the, uh, the yuan or the BRICS currency. Don't think about it as money. Think about it as a network because that's what it is. 
And when you look at it as a network, I think you come to much different conclusions and conclusions that are far more accurate. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Okay, let's keep going here. Thanks. All right. So team, yes, we've got the lessons of history from Jim that, uh, you know, uh, Currencies have lost their world reserve status uh, throughout history, uh, and we just saw it happen last century with the British pound, uh, though it takes a while. Um, and Bob, you're saying, look, if we just continue the, the trend that we're just seeing right now, um, we extrapolate that out, we get below 50% uh, world reserve currency status you know, in not that many years. All right, going over to team no, let's start with Brent Johnson, developer, as he said, of the dollar milkshake theory. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say thanks for the invite to this event tonight. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I also want to thank the panelists because uh, about a little over 15 years ago in the middle of the global financial crisis, when I realized that my superiors on Wall Street didn't know what was happening and didn't know why it was happening, that I would have to figure all this stuff out for myself. And when I first started digging into this, one of the first things I came across was the Mises Institute and the Austrian School of Economics which explained economics to me in a way that I had never uh, been exposed to before. And shortly after finding that, I found Bob Murphy and I started reading your works and I listened to a number of your presentations. And it really is a fundamental block of my understanding of free market economics. Um, so thank you for that. Jim, I think I've read all your books, if not all your books, most of your books. And I think you are probably the first person who made me realize that perhaps the most important variable in all of global markets is the one which is least understood and that's currency. And so you just kind of set me down that road of digging into there. And as far as my compatriot, Michael here, I think he has probably over the last couple of years been the most logical and well-spoken person. Uh, and I'm obviously biased here, but I think in explaining, you know, where we're headed and why. So um, with that out of the way, uh, you know, I, I'm a money manager. And so for me, in my business, if you get the timing wrong, you're wrong, period, full stop. Um, it's a little bit different than if you are an educator or a philosopher. And so to me, the, 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 anybody who has even a cursory understanding of financial history knows that fiat currencies die and global reserve currency holders lose it. So the fact that that always happens, that's not that valuable. What's really valuable is understanding the dynamics which surround it and the timing. If you get those two things right, then that's valuable. And so my position is pretty simple, and that is de-dollarization cannot happen without extreme economic volatility, and it probably cannot happen without military violence. And as a result, I think this de-dollarization theme, while popular, is unlikely to happen as quickly and efficiently and come to an end as soon as most people think. 
And the reason is, is because de-dollarization, while it sounds very simple, it's actually very complex. De-dollarization in a debt-based monetary system is the same thing as deleverage. And when you deleverage a US dollar denominated system, the US dollar rises. Yeah. And when the US dollar rises, it causes problems for the whole world. Um, the Euro dollar market, the whole world chose the dollar as their currency decades ago. The US didn't force it on them. They chose it. Now, they set the trap of their, they, they built their own prison, essentially. And the Euro dollar market has become so big and so opaque that it's this Gordian knot that I don't think can be unwound. I think the only way to get through it is like Alexander do, did and just blow it up, cut it in half. And I don't see any foreign leaders out there that are anywhere close to Alexander. And so I would just say that, you know, the euro dollar market will reinforce the dollar as the global reserve currency if de-dollarization is attempted. If they somehow, if the people who are de-dollarizing somehow get through that euro dollar market volatility, U.S. monetary policy can be used to squash it. And if by some miracle, <laughs> these world leaders make it through those first two, the U.S. military will be there to back up the dollar. And I know that last part is not very popular, but it's a fact of life. And so I think the likelihood of the U.S. dollar losing the global reserve currency in the next six years, I think is extremely low. Yeah. So I don't even think you need to get to the military side of the equation because what Brent's talking about there with the euro dollar system is exactly what I was talking about with the the network effect. But one thing that he points out that um, I would probably expand on a little bit further is the value of the dollar in this process relative to other currencies is crucial. It, it's very important because if the dollar stays quote unquote high relative to other currencies, that's going to make that euro dollar network much more powerful because think about it well, let's use the example of japan assume that you're uh, a japanese multinational and over the past three years you've seen the yen go from let's just say 100 to 140 or whatever it is today so it, it's lost uh, a, a, a massive amount of its purchasing power okay well now this is relative to other uh, currencies, right? Uh, now, what has it done relative to goods and services in Japan? It's gone down because they've had inflation, consumer price inflation go up to you know, maybe two, 3%, something like that. So it hasn't gone down a lot, but it's gone down a little bit. It definitely has gone down a little bit relative to goods and services, which that Japanese multinational is concerned with because obviously a lot of their inputs are denominated in yen. Okay. Well, let's remember that the yen has lost a massive amount of value relative to the dollar. So if that multinational would have been holding their reserves in dollars instead of yen, or at least like 50-50, something like that, or treasuries, or which is basically a dollar cash equivalent, then what they would have done is uh, even if the dollar had gone down against goods and services in the United States, which it did dramatically. No one would debate that. In fact, I think we all agree that the CPI here in the United States is understated. But the Japanese multinational could care less about what the dollar is doing relative to goods and services in the United States. They don't care. Who cares? CPI 9% sucks to be you. 
what they look at is the dollar not just going up in value against their currency, but more importantly, the dollar going way up in value relative to their input costs, the stuff that they have to buy, the goods and services that they purchase daily or their wages or whatever it's done that's denominated in yen. So th this is a, a, a really big deal. Uh, and, and Brent, I think he touches on it slightly, but I, I would have maybe gone over it a little bit more and that uh, if the euro dollar network starts to break down, let's just assume that it does as a result of what they're saying with the BRICS currency, that is not dollar negative. That is dollar positive. Why? Because it's a debt-based monetary system. And if velocity slows down, there's, for, there's fewer currency units to pay off that debt, then you get basically a deflationary bust. Okay, and that deflationary bust with the euro dollar system, with the banks and whatnot, the value of the dollar skyrockets. So if the dollar is skyrocketing, even if the system is breaking down to a certain degree, ironically, that makes the system stronger at the exact same time. So you have this, this counterbalance, right? That if the system is breaking down, the system is being built back up by the fact that the breakdown is increasing the value of the dollar relative not just to other currencies, but to goods and services in their local economies. And, and Brent, sorry, just for viewers that might not be familiar with the term you use, because it's going to come up a lot tonight, I think. Can you just briefly just define the euro dollar market? Yeah, that's a good point. So the euro dollar market is really just a dollar that exists outside the United States. If there's a dollar balance sitting in an account in Turkey, that's a euro dollar. If Japan, if a, if a Japan bank extends, you know, U.S. dollar uh, trade finance to a supplier in the Philippines, that's a euro dollar. And the euro dollar market is orders of magnitude larger than the dollar market inside the United States. So there's incredible demand throughout the whole world for the U.S. dollar. All right. Great. Uh, and that last but not least, Michael Every, who, Michael, I just want to mention that you are the uh... one thing I'd point out there just very quickly here is, uh, of course, that's accurate what Brent was saying. But additionally, it's a system that doesn't really run on dollars, ironically enough. There, there aren't really green pieces of paper going from bank to bank in settlement, and they really don't use bank reserves at all. So it's cashless, reserveless system. I think that's also uh, very important to understand. Uh, the, the only one amongst the panelists who lives outside of the U.S. So you actually transact, interact, and invest in non-U.S. currencies on a daily basis. Yes, and in U.S. dollars. You, you want to talk euro dollar? I'm, <laughs> I'm a euro dollar sitting here in the room. Um, I'd like to echo what Brent said uh, in terms of thanking uh, Zero H for the opportunity to be here. And I am pretty much an outsider alongside these luminaries in the field, uh, given that I'm a Brit, as you can hear. Uh, I work for a bank uh, based in Singapore, which is a long way from here. Um, and if you put that together, you might think, what do I have to add? Well, as Adam just said, um, it's an outsider's view. Um, I've lived and worked in nine different countries around the world over my life, uh, including in post-communist Russia, when it was very chaotic, uh, and including in greater China, which gives you some insight into what we're talking about when we talk about de-dollarization. Um, at the same time, Rabobank are global experts in trade commodity finance, which is where you will see de-dollarization happening or not. You won't see that in the US. You'll see it abroad. Uh, and that combination of factors, I think, makes me relatively well-placed, alongside the work I've been doing looking at it anyway. But what I want to add to everything that Brent just said is this. 
if we're making the logical case that we're going to see de-dollarization, logically, we have to say what's going to replace it. Because you can't just say it will go away and all the money will go nowhere. It will go into something else. So what do we think might replace it? Well, will it be another fiat currency? Well, over the course of the evening, I'm going to answer, no, I don't think there's a single fiat currency. And, and again, I think he's making a great point, but I want to encourage everyone to kind of have that mental shift where instead of asking what currency will replace the dollar, ask what network will replace the dollar. That can do that. Will it be gold? I strongly uh, disavow that notion. I don't think that's realistic. And again, I hope we can discuss why. Could it be crypto with Bitcoin going through the roof at the moment? Again, I don't think so. And I hope we can unpack why later. Uh, or could it be some BRICS currency based on a basket of commodities, which is an idea being floated out there? Again, I've done a lot of work looking at this, and I simply don't think that's sustainable. So logically, whether you like it or not, and I'm not saying I do, if you can't put forward something that's going to replace it, then it's not likely to be replaced. And there you go, pretty straightforward. So now let's fast forward to the part of the debate that more so turned into a conversation, but not really about the dollar. And this is what I think most people be surprised by. Uh, and it, it really caught me off guard. It's definitely a curveball. And that's what I was talking about in the title. It's where the conversation completely shifted away from the dollar as far as reserve currency over into central bank digital currencies. Now, this was fascinating. Most of you know my view on central bank digital currencies that, uh, or what I've been pounding the table on here and saying that it's not a different currency. It's not Fed coin. It's not this. It's not this. And if you think it's that, you leave yourself open to being duped by the central planners. What you have to understand is it's simply the consolidation of a ledger, or it's simply moving commercial bank deposit liabilities onto the Fed's balance sheet. They're still called dollars. And that's why I always encourage people to go through the thought experiment of asking yourself, how do you know you're not using a central bank digital currency right now? Just because your, your bank card says Wells Fargo? <laughs> so what? How do you know that's not a liability of the Fed? You don't. And that's my point. So they're not going to come out and say, oh, we're making this announcement. We're using Fed coin. No, 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 no. What they're going to do is the whole banking system start to collapse. Let's just say, assume this happens in 2025 or something. And they say, look, there's not enough money in the FDIC. Uh, this should not be a burden of the taxpayer or responsibility. But we can't have people taking haircuts that are depositors because it creates fragility in the system. It creates systemic risk. Definitely deflationary. Central planners don't want that. So they say, well, we've got a perfect idea. Why, for all these years, have we had people... Um, try to trust or not trust the banking system as a counterparty with their life savings or their, their, their cash savings. Uh, this doesn't make any sense when we know a bank can go bust. So why would we not just take those liabilities, those assets of the average Joe and Jane and put them onto the one bank's balance sheet that cannot go bust? That'd be the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank. And this is how they sell it, right? And there's a variety of other things like selling points that I think they'll emphasize when we get to that point in time. But uh, that's what people have to focus on 
when they're thinking about a central bank digital currency. The mistake people make is they focus on some sort of Fed coin that's going to be competing with the dollar. And uh, I think that's a mistake because it leaves people susceptible to being duped, like we said earlier, by the central planners. And uh, the, the guys kind of expand on that in a way that I thought was very, very powerful. Let's go right to, it's right here. I'm going to the timestamp here. I wrote this down. Oh, okay. One of them is the gold topic. The other one is the the dollar versus real things story. So the dollar's purchasing power versus things, not other fiat currencies, right? And I want, I want to get your guys' thoughts on that. I think you'll probably be much more in alignment on that, but we'll find out. But I also want to find out if indeed you think the dollar is going to perform, perform poorly in terms of its future purchasing power. What assets you think concerned investors might want to consider putting their, their dollars into to, to protect against that? Um, but before we get there, I want to ask a question about Bitcoin. Um, and I'm going to combine it with the CBDC question, just because they're sort of of a similar feather, which is, um, uh, do you think that central bank digital currencies uh, are, exist, are, are, are definitely coming? And what do you think their impact will be on existing monetary arrangements? And for extra points in your answer, if you can give any thoughts, uh, any clarity on your thoughts on Bitcoin and the role it might play in the potential monetary structure going forward, please try to do that. Uh, Bob, let's start with you. Okay. Uh, so really quickly, I think part of the the reason I think these events can happen much more quickly than the people on the other couch here is uh, our company, Infinio, part of what we're doing is you know, building out blockchain solutions, taking real world assets, tokenizing them and household names, you know, big banks that you've heard of, they're doing this stuff. So I think this is coming sooner than a lot of people realize. And so in that type of world where, yes, more and more things are digital, I think it's going to be a lot easier to say, well, gee, how could these people over here possibly coordinate their commerce. I think it's just going to be a lot easier if a lot of commerce is all happening more digitally. So that that's one element. Yeah, I think Bitcoin is a great thing. You know, you're in some country where there's authoritarian rule and you're trying to get out. You just memorize your your password, your key, and then you can cross the border. I don't have any assets. What are you talking about? You just remember something you can have. You know, so I, th I think that's, you know, a, gr a great use case of things like Bitcoin. Um, CBDCs, yeah, I, there's a, a war on cash. I don't think that's for the reasons the academic economists are giving. I think it's because they want to control more. But in one sense, it's ironic because I think as the world moves toward that, then people will also look at you know, market-based alternatives. And, and again, that's, that's, I think, one of the alternatives to these state-issued fiat currencies is more market-based ones. And in the future, I think that's going to be more of a viable alternative, even though now it seems like science fiction. Okay. Um so, uh, I mean, just quick comments on on that. I, I, I agree. Uh, I think uh, everyone should own Bitcoin, but not because the, the price is going to the moon or FOMO or YOLO or, or, or whatever, uh, or not because money printer go burr. It, it, it's simply, I think it's very, very prudent to have purchasing power outside of the current system and to where you don't have the counterparty risk and you don't have to haul around your gold with you to take your purchasing power from one country to another country. And uh, I think that's very, very powerful, especially in a world that's moving closer and closer to CBDCs. It's just you have to be realistic about how much stuff you can actually buy with that Bitcoin and understanding that right now it isn't a lot, 
And therefore, I think we are going to get to a CBDC before we get to a world where you can use your Bitcoin only and maintain your standard of living. Because right now, obviously, you couldn't do that. Uh, you, you can't pay for your rent in Bitcoin. You can't go down to the cheesecake factory and pay for Bitcoin. You would have to convert your Bitcoin into the local currency. So I think what's prudent for people is to think about some sort of hybrid model, which um, just for most of you know, or most of you know this, but uh, this is why I'm going to drive to Buenos Aires, to Argentina uh, with Josh in April to meet Doug Casey. And the whole trip going down the Pan American Highway, we're going to transact outside of the monetary system. We're going to be using Bitcoin, gold, silver. So, and, and we're doing this to show people how this works in practice, not just in theory, so people can start to prepare. Brandon, Michael, either one of you two guys want to go? Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I mean, these are very muddy waters. Um, and, uh, you know, as Nietzsche said, they muddy the waters to make them look deep. You know, some, sometimes there's something there and sometimes there really isn't anything there. Um, I do suspect if we see CBDCs going forward, let's, let's keep it as if for now, they're going to be overtly political. I'm completely with you on that. And I would estimate the only need for rolling them out is to move towards a more planned economy, yeah, which exactly. I suspect we will see. Exactly. Because to, you know, to link to a thesis I've had for some time now, when we're talking about Fed funds and saying five and a half helps the dollar versus BRICS rivals, which I think it does. But a lot of the US economy requires zero, for example, the Pentagon. So you can actually start building things again rather than paying money on on interest, my thesis is actually they'll end up using a CBDC of some form to do both. So you've got programmable money, which is hypothecated that can only go here, not anywhere else, which actually is how the Soviet economy worked, if you, if you remember that. You, know, yeah. you couldn't use it anywhere except where it was allocated. And by doing that, you will... Right. And, and he hits a... I, I, didn't, I forgot that he mentioned the, uh, the, the Russian economy there and uh, the system that they had with Gazbank, which was the only bank... And uh, if you study that, you see that they had the exact same capabilities back then that the government would have moving forward if we had a CBDC. All the authoritarian, all the Big Brother stuff, all the extension of credit to <clears throat> just people who have political favors and whatnot. It was the exact same. But yeah, we didn't have anything. We didn't even have computers. Why was that? Because it was just on one ledger. It was just on one ledger. That's the key. And I think that Michael hits the nail on the head that I, I think it's more of a, a when question, not an if. But when we get the CBDC, it's all about a planned, controlled economy. I think that uh, Jim, in a moment, might go into artificial intelligence. This will completely blow your mind. But uh, for those of you who have been watching my videos for the last two years, uh, you probably remember me doing whiteboard videos on C CBDCs where I was talking about the AI brain cloud. This is something that I just completely invented just kind of in my imagination. And I, I drew it up on the board because my hypothesis was that if you have all the transactions coming into the one uh, ledger, uh, they can see every single transaction in real time and that they're likely going to use AI to crunch those numbers to then argue that the 
price discovery doesn't matter anymore. And therefore the free market doesn't matter anymore. And uh, because now we have artificial intelligence, it's going to be able to allocate goods and resources far better than the free market ever could. And that's what takes you straight into you know, whatever you want to call it, complete central planning, socialism, uh, a, a planned economy. I think that's the mechanism uh, that they use to bring this to fruition. It's, it's the combination of real-time data, one ledger, with artificial intelligence. Therefore, we don't need the free market. We can allocate resources in a way that's superior. Obviously, they can't. I'm just saying that's the pitch. Kind of jerry-rig a rather ugly crude system which will be used to try and physically keep the U.S. in a position where it can remain top dog, regardless of what the fiscal metrics look like. Now, is that ugly? Yeah. Do I like the idea of it? God, no. Do I think it's still going to happen where you have a 5.5% interest rate for irrelevant areas and 0% interest rate for the ones which have national security implications? I think it's largely unavoidable at some point, largely because China is already doing a version of it, and you can't possibly compete in a national security sense with free markets or you know, money brought to you by Kmart when you're dealing with uh, an entity which has got such a planned economy aiming at physical production, aiming to push you off the world stage, which is you know, how some in the Pentagon see it. So I think that national security crisis can lead to a revolution in terms of how we do things, which will shake up everything for all of us in terms of how we understand it. And you know, I'm not happy at the prospect. You're not gonna get me signing a document saying this is the, the best thing since sliced bread, far from it. But yeah, the national security implications lead me to believe that's probably where it's headed rather than an interesting investment uh, portfolio structure for someone, you know, trading at home. And maybe. Wow. Great point. I, I missed this too when, when I watched it. Great point. So let me unpack that uh, because I, I think he just assumes that the panel knows what he's referring to. They probably do, but I don't know that the viewer really does. In a CBDC world, the central bank can't go bust. Therefore, it can have negative equity. So, what this means is they can start allocating credit or issuing credit, not based on the borrower's ability to pay them back, but simply based on narrative. So what that also means is that they can charge this entity 0% interest, because remember, it's not about risk reward. That has nothing to do with it. They can't go bust. And they can charge this ent uh, entity, uh, You know, well, let's give specific examples. They could charge this entity 0% interest and this entity 10%. Now, where I, I think they'll do that with the kind of social aspects, they'll say, well, this disadvantaged group, or we're going to give them all the loans they want at 0%, but you straight white uh, Christian males, well, you're going to have to pay 10% because you've had this privilege for the last 50 years or whatever. We've got to even the playing field. But what the point that Michael makes out, uh, excuse me, the, the point that Michael makes, which is absolutely fantastic, and I hadn't really thought through, is the probability of moving to this CBDC world increases quite dramatically in the sense that you've got China that's already doing this where they're giving their military loans at 0%, but yet the private sector, let's just say, is at 5%. So if we, the United States, want to compete with their military effectively getting 0% money, we're going to have to do the exact same thing. Or that puts us at a massive disadvantage. And this may be another selling point that we have to move to a central bank digital currency so that we can have basically individualized monetary policy. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a matter of national security. That too, but I think it's much more about making sure that 
you know, people who need guns have them in their hands. All right. So, Michael, I'm going to ask you an unfair question that I'm going to ask everybody on this topic, which is just take your best guesstimate time frame in years of, of when you think uh, CBDCs will be deployed at material scale. Something we're seeing in the next couple of years? Is it a decade or two decades off? What do you think? It depends who wins the next election. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, openly, if you look at it, Trump has said there'll never be a digital dollar. See, this is where I completely disagree. Because, and, and I, I wish Adam wouldn't phrase it that way. That, that when, when is, are they going to roll out a CBDC? They're not rolling out anything. It, it's just, this isn't a competing currency. This is just simply the commercial bank deposit liabilities moving to the Fed's balance sheet. That's not rolling anything out. That, that's reeling everything in. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the complete opposite. And why I think that, that Trump isn't really going to matter because I could see Trump arguing for this inadvertently. Not that he's going to argue for a CBDC, but you don't think Trump, the, the populist that he is, wouldn't argue for the Federal Reserve paying the average Joe and Jane the same interest rate that they pay Jamie Dimon? So they're not going to call it a CBDC, but they could call it sliced bread. Does it, does it matter? They could call it anything they want. The, the terminology they use is absolutely irrelevant. It's the mechanics. It's the plumbing, right? So again, I don't think that Donald Trump is going to come out and say, and what's ironic is he'll probably be saying these things at the exact same time, not even knowing that he's talking about a central bank digital currency. What I mean by that is I could see him like in the exact same speech coming out and saying, there will never be a central bank digital currency on my watch. And then one minute later saying, but the Federal Reserve should be paying everyone the exact same interest rate that they pay Jamie Dimon. Well, how, how, did they, how do they do that, Donald Trump? Well, it, it's easy. Actually, everyone should be able to have an account with the Federal Reserve. But there's never going to be a CBDC on my watch, you see. It's having a fundamental misunderstanding of what a CBDC is, it, in my view, is a real danger. It's 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 the real threat, right? So I don't think uh, Trump is going to get in the way of a CBDC because he doesn't even know what it is. And he inadvertently, I think, will argue for it. Um, so if he wins, that's not going to happen. And I don't think anyone else will dare to do it in the Western camp before the U.S. They'll get everything ready. They'll get all the technology ready, but I don't think they'll want to launch it if the U.S. isn't going to. But if, uh, you know, if Biden wins, potentially. Uh, he hasn't said anything clearly about it, but it would certainly sit more comfortably with the more technocratic approach that we've seen in terms of the CHIPS Act, the IRA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why not do that with programmable money where you can try and can control the economy as much as you want? So maybe we're in agreement on that. I don't know. All right. Bob, I just wanted to give you a chance to give timing. Uh, sure. So if we're talking about the U.S., um, and here I'm cribbing, I like George Gammon's take on this. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a you know, Fed coin anytime soon because you know 40% of the country would recoil in horror. But what you might see is a continued of the trend of consolidation, smaller banks going under bigger mm -hmm. banks, mm -hmm. and then they're more hand in glove with the Fed. Yeah. And so it's, you, right? you know, yeah. yep. <laughs> they phase yep. out like, this is anecdotal, but like yep. when I go to the ATM and the amount that it suggests, maybe I want to take out has gone down over time, even though that amount purchases less. Mm -hmm. And so there really is just this concerted effort to wean us from using currency, yep. you know, paper. Yep. And I think you're just going to see that. So it's not going to be perhaps literally a CBDC, but you know, moving Americans toward, you know, towards that. I think it's just, it's, it's happening right now. 
Yeah. By the way, Bob, thanks for the shout out. <laughs> I sincerely appreciate it. Bob and I have, have talked about this quite extensively. So it was nice to see him uh, bring that up. Okay. Brent, you want anything on this? No, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Bob. On that. Okay. Um, Jim, I want to get to gold. So just do you have any particularly strongly felt thoughts around this topic? I know you do around CBDCs. Yeah, I mean, I could talk at length about CBDCs, but you asked everyone to drop a footnote on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular. It's I've studied it for for twelve years or, or actually longer, um, and uh, it had other than the smuggling and tax evasion, it has no use case. Yep. Uh, it's a novelty. Uh, it took me a very I understand the technology. I read the papers. I get the math, but it took me a very long time to figure out what it actually is, or at least a good analog and. To me, it's a casino chip. I go into the casino, put a thousand dollars down the roulette table. They give me my chips. I gamble. I can win or lose. Uh, at the end of the night, I take my chips over to the cashier. I get dollars and I walk outside. If I walk outside with the chips, they're worthless. I can't buy a cup of coffee with those chips. So if you're in the crypto world, you can train it. By the way, there's very good research, rigorous research by MIT scholars that shows that over 90% of the Bitcoin transactions are wash trades. It's just a small number of whales yeah. moving back and forth. It's like Kennedy and um, uh, and others, you know, ramping stocks in the 1920s. Uh, it's it's also hallucinogenic in the sense that people see what they want to see. So it's a uh, it's kind of a clown world. It's a form of entertainment. You can make, I know people made 20, 40 million dollars, paid their taxes, and walked away. So that's real. But a lot of people committing suicide because of what they've lost. So uh, to me, it's it's a it's a joke. Uh, it's not going anywhere now. Let's talk about CBDCs because that's real. So right now, let's say I go to an airport. I want to buy a candy bar. I use my credit card. Uh, what does the merchant do with the credit card receipt? Well, they sell it to someone called a merchant acquirer who bundle up all these receivables. The merchant acquirer will take you know hundreds of millions uh, of these receivables, deliver them to MasterCard or Visa, get paid. MasterCard or Visa then sends them out to all the banks who issue the cards. The bank sends me a bill and I pay it. You got five intermediaries for one candy bar: me, the merchant, the merchant acquirer, the uh, Mastercard Visa, and the bank. Fees all along the way. So the case for CBDCs, which are not cryptocurrencies, by the way. I mean, I disagree with your point, Adam. That is kind of like crypto. They're not. The message traffic's encrypted, but that's been true since the seventies. Um, but the key to uh, to uh, CBDCs is you, you've got to get rid of cash. I agree with Bob on that because that is an alternative. But the most important about that, I agree with everything Michael said. But there's something far worse just below the surface. They always sell it on the basis of convenience. But right now, if I buy a book, I make a political contribution, I make a religious contribution, uh, you know, I give to a charity, I go to a certain event, et cetera. That's all private. Now, you know, if you're under investigation, they get a subpoena, that's one thing. But that's all private. Where the government maintains the ledger, which is what CBDCs are. They will know all of that. They will know the books you buy, the churches you go to, the you know the FBI is investigating Catholics who go to Tridentine masses, which have been around since the 16th century. I mean, uh, so that's that's an example of how how bad the government is at this stage. But they'll have all their information. You apply artificial intelligence to that database. You can profile the individuals. Go back to Biden's speech in Independence Hall in September 2022, ahead of the midterm elections, stage managed by the ghost of Lenny Reifenstahl, because you know the blood red. Pillars and the military guards, and it was right out. It was right out of the Norm, right out of the Nuremberg rallies. Uh, they probably owe royalties for that. So, uh, uh, but he but he basically identified fifty percent of the of the Americans said you are enemies of the people, you are MAGA Republicans, et cetera. So combine that rhetoric, which is which is heartfelt in the White House, uh, with 
artificial intelligence and having the ledger and knowing everything you buy, every contribution you make. This is um, uh, we're, you're in uh, you're in Brave New World. It's not like oh, it's coming or let's look for it. You're actually there. I was uh, yeah, maybe they're not waiting for that because the FBI basically got a lot of records from Bank of America uh, the other day about whether you shop at Dick's Sporting Goods, Cabela's. Were Bass Pro Shops because they sell guns and ammo. It used to be, by the way, when you went into Cabela's and bought something, there was a code that the credit card companies used a code, and it was just sporting goods. Mm. The government required them to break out guns and ammo. So if you buy a kayak, you know, good for you. So they're already tracing this stuff. They're already violating the First Amendment, the Fourth yeah. Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. It's going to get a lot worse under central bank digital currencies. Thank goodness for Trump, he's going to stop it in his tracks. I agree with Michael. Whether it happens or not in the next Six years depends entirely on whether Trump um, becomes president. So that's a good reason to uh, to support him. Yeah. So, uh, wow. I I did not know that about those sporting goods stores having to now actually separate that or disclose that on the receipt, which is the bank statement, which the government in certain situations could have access to that bank statement. That 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 is a big deal, and uh, the writing's on the wall guys, uh, for sure. And uh, if we or when we have this CBDC, you know, why it's different, uh, Jim points out, because the government will know every single transaction where right now, at least we've got some sort of buffer, uh, some sort of firewall between us and the authoritarians and the central planners. Uh, Where I obviously disagree is that Jim thinks that Trump is a silver bullet and I, I think he's just a bull in a china shop. And uh, I'm not saying that I you know, would vote for him or not vote for him or any of those things. Um, I dislike all politicians equally. Obviously, Biden is, is absolutely horrible, horrible. I'd say probably even worse than Trump. But um, I don't have any confidence, bottom line, that he's going to be able to impact the CBDC because he doesn't even know what it is. And I agree with Bob, of course, that when they roll this out, it's they're not going to announce that it's a CBDC. Why would they do that? It's just they're going to have a banking crisis, and they're going to say, here's the solution. We should just move these deposit liabilities to the Fed's balance sheet. And everyone is going to say, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. Why didn't we think of that before? And they're going to say, look at all the upside. Uh, I had a conversation, a little debate last night on Twitter, and uh, I agreed with the, the person I was debating on a lot of things. And one of the things that we agreed on is mechanically, if you have a CBDC, you have no difference between broad money and base money. It's all one and the same, which ironically is a selling point of, of full reserve Bitcoin. But the point there is that uh, you have no risk in that system. Oh, well, let me be clear. You have no risk of the depositor taking a haircut. <laughs> There's plenty of risk. There's a hell of a lot more risk. But I think that's going to be a huge selling point. And uh, along with the convenience the instant settlement. Uh, I think you're going to be able to convert your dollar CBDCs into Mexican pesos if you go on vacation. I think they're going to make that free. There's going to be all these bells and whistles uh, that entice people. And probably the, the, the biggest thing that will entice them above and beyond the zero risk that they ever have to take a haircut again because they don't have the bank as a counterparty, they have the Fed, is the is that the Fed will be able to pay them IOR. So right now, the Fed is paying the bank, the big banksters 5.25%, as you guys know, on their bank reserves. But yet the average Joe and Jane, are, are, are any of you getting 5.25% on your checking account? Any of you? Absolutely not. 
In fact, with uh, if you're with a big bank that has a lot less risk, you're probably only getting, I don't know what, 1%, 2% of that. So that, to me, I think is going to be the biggest selling point. And I think why Donald Trump would unknowingly sell a CBDC because he's going to say, you know, this is going to buy me all these votes. I'm a populist, if I have any principles at all. And uh, I want the average Joe and Jane out there to get the exact same interest rate on their checking account as Jamie Dimon. So anyway, those are my thoughts. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. I'm going to be doing an incredible webinar this Friday on how I'm setting up my my own portfolio, as well as my good buddy, Chris McIntosh, who's a hedge fund manager, how he is setting up his portfolio to not only survive, but thrive uh, whatever comes our way in 2024, 2025, whether that's a recession, whether that's a CBDC, whether that's, uh, you know, civil war due to this border crisis, or whether it's the great taking, uh, you know, that hypothesis, that theory that David Webb has, we're going to be discussing how we are setting up our own portfolios uh, for any of those situations. So you can attend that webinar this Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern time by going to georgegammon.com. I think Josh has put up the link, but I think you just can just go to georgegammon.com forward slash pro. Also takes you to the exact same page. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next video. We'll see you this Friday.